Well, if, if you've been with us for the past three Sundays, you guys know that we have started a series through the book of Acts. And, uh, and I'm really excited that this church is going to be spending the next two years in this book. And it's a book, as we mentioned in our first lesson, it's worth reading and knowing. Now this morning, we come to verses 9 through 11 in book number 5 of the New Testament, the book of Acts. So I'll read it, follow along, and we'll get right into our message today that I've entitled, The Ascension of Christ. In verse 9 it says, And when he had said these things, and you guys remember, Jesus had just spoken to his apostles about the baptism with the Holy Spirit and how they were going to be empowered with power from on high to fulfill the global commission to preach the gospel. It says, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by him in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. As we come to these verses and we spend time thinking about them, there are a couple of things that I want us to leave with today. Number one, we want to begin with the account of Christ's ascension. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, this is a very familiar story to you. And and generally, when people read about the ascension of Christ, sadly, they read it too quickly, they pass over it too oftenly without taking the time to think about what is going on here with the ascension of Jesus Christ. Generally, we spend time talking about the death of Christ, talking about the resurrection of Christ. But guys, we need to understand that the ascension of Christ is also an essential ingredient to the story of Jesus. So talking about the account that Luke gives to us, number one, we see the description. We just read it in verses 9 through 11, the description of the ascension of Christ. First question, what happened to Jesus? Now, I want you to notice, first in verse 9, Luke says that Jesus was lifted up. Now, in the Greek, that word lifted up, it's used in relation to the hoisting of a sail on a sailboat. In fact, that same word was used in Acts 27, verse 40, when it was talking about the sailors hoisting the sail on the ship that Paul was on, on his way to Rome. And so Luke here is saying Jesus, when he was lifted up, it was as if he was being hoisted up as a sail on a boat is being hoisted. Again, in Acts chapter 1, verse 9, it says, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now that's significant. Commentating on those words, took him, the famous Greek scholar, A.T. Robertson, he points out that this, this phrase in the Greek, this word in the Greek, it literally means that the clouds took under him. It was as if the clouds came beneath Jesus and carried him to heaven. It's interesting that in Psalm 104 verse 3, speaking about God, David said, He makes the clouds His chariots and rides on the wings of the wind. And what a vivid scene that is, as these clouds began to just to envelope Jesus and they became like chariots for him and they carried him up to heaven. 
Verse 10 says, as he went. Again, this is a common word in Greek and it means to travel from one destination to another. And then in verse 11 it says that Jesus was taken up. Now this word taken up, it literally is a word that means to be taken aboard a ship. Again, that was the word that was used in Acts 20 when Paul was taken aboard the ship that would carry him to Rome. So that's the description that Luke gives to us of the ascension of Jesus. There was a movement upward. It was the act of changing location in an upward direction. And what we see here, and this is really important, is that Jesus was physically and visibly, to a certain point, transported upward from one place to another. That's what happened. Second question, where did he go? Where did Jesus go in this ascension? Well, verse 11 tells us that Jesus went into heaven. He went to heaven. In Mark chapter 16, verse 19, it says He was taken up into heaven, and more specifically, and sat down at the right hand of God. Remember after Jesus rose again from the dead and, he, and His first encounter with Mary Magdalene. And Mary clung on to Jesus as if to say, look it, you got away from me one time, I'm going to make sure you don't get away from me the second time. And so Jesus says to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended, listen, to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending where? To my Father and your Father. I love that. That's what the gospel does for us. My Father, your Father, to my God and your God. So Jesus literally, visibly, physically ascended upward. The clouds, they became like chariots for Him, carrying Him into heaven to the right hand of God, to His Father, our Father, His God, our God. But here's the thing that I want us to really think about today because this is really important. Guys, there is a meaning behind the ascension that's so important for us as Christians that we don't neglect to understand what the ascension of Christ means for us today in the 21st century. There are six things that I want to share with you of why the ascension of Jesus Christ is worth thinking about and why it should be important for us as Christians today. Number one, the ascension of Christ concluded... It concluded Jesus' humiliation and self-limitation. It concluded Jesus' humiliation and self-limitation. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul wrote when he was writing to the Philippians. In chapter 2, verses 5-7, through seven, speaking about the incarnate Christ, God coming to earth as a human person, as a human being, he said, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Listen, though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to. Or in other words, because he's God, he had the right to call himself God. There was no threat of him ever losing that position. There was no threat of him ever becoming something other than God. And so there was no need for that kind of clinging onto that position because he's God. And then he goes on, after he makes his clear statement that he's God, he's deity, instead he, Jesus, 
gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Guys, as God, there is nothing and no one above Jesus. Here he said that he also humbled himself to the point of being a slave. Guys, you know what a slave is, right? A slave is someone that is an other's person. And a slave, there's no one beneath a slave. You can't go any lower than being a slave. From a slave up, everyone is above you. So think about the incarnation. From the highest of highs, he descended. He condescended to the lowest of lows. As God, there was no one above him. As a slave, there was no one beneath him. That's the full gamut. That was his humiliation and self-limitation. It means that during his time on earth, Jesus humbly took to himself all of the limitations of being human to the point of suffering and death. But guys, this ended at the ascension of Christ. It ended. Point number two, it also concluded Jesus' activities on earth while on earth. From this point on, he's going to continue his activities on earth from heaven. From this point on, he's going to continue his activities on earth by his spirit, working through God's people, the church. You and I are the body of Christ. Christ is actively working here on earth, but not in his human body, in his limited form, in his incarnate state here on earth, but through the church, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Point number three. Why is the ascension of Jesus Christ important? Because it brought Jesus into exalted glory. The ascension of Christ brought Jesus into exalted glory. Guys, before his death on the cross, Jesus prayed, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And preaching about the risen and the ascended Christ, this is what the Apostle Peter declared. He said, He is exalted, listen, to the place of highest honor in heaven at God's right hand. And again, there in Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, after Paul emphasizes the incarnation and the humiliation of God the Son, it turns around and it goes upward. In Philippians 2 verses 9 through 11 it says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every name should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, listen, is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What is that name that God had given to Jesus that is the name above every other name? You know what that name is? Lord. Lord. Well, wait a minute. Wasn't Jesus, God the Son, already Lord before His incarnation? Not like after the ascension. Because after the ascension, it was the God-man 
The God-man. That God now says, here is the name above every other name I'm giving you. It is Lord. And it is at that name that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Guys, there is no other person that carries that name. That can rightfully carry that name, Lord, other than Jesus Christ. So the ascension, it carried him into glory. Number four, it affirms Jesus' heavenly origin. It affirms Jesus' heavenly origin. Guys, being God, Jesus came from heaven, and here we see that he returns to heaven. During his time here on earth, Jesus told the people that he came from heaven. In John 6, 38, Jesus said, I have come down from heaven. In John 8, 23, Jesus said, I am from above. I am not of this world. Why is that important? Because it affirms his claims. Jesus claims to be God who came from heaven. Guys, if Jesus didn't come from heaven, then logically we'd have to conclude he's not God. But the fact that he would say, look at I am God who came down from heaven. And the fact that he went back to heaven, it authenticates his claims. Number five, it affirms the completeness of Jesus' redemptive and propitiatory work on the cross. Now, propitiation, don't let that word scare you. The word propitiation simply means that when Jesus died on the cross, that he took our place on the cross in absorbing, becoming the recipient of God's wrath toward our sins. The ascension of Jesus Christ tells us that that work of redemption, that work of propitiation, it's done. You can't add to it. What do I mean by that? In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, in Hebrews 1 3, it says, After making purification for sins, listen, this is important, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Listen, after he made purification for sins, that's his death, that's his resurrection. What did he do after he did that? He sat down. He went to heaven and he sat down. Guys, think about the implications. On earth, the tabernacle, the temple, they had a bunch of different furnitures, but there was one piece of furniture it did not have. You know what that was? A chair. When you walked into the tabernacle in the temple, you saw a lampstand, you saw a table, you saw an altar, there was an Ark of the Covenant, a bunch of different pieces of furniture, but there was one piece of furniture that was never there. A chair. Why? Because the message was this. Animal sacrifices must continually be offered. And the work of the priest will never be done. Why? Because people sin. People need propitiation. People need forgiveness. And as a result of that, the, the sacrifices of animals, they were limited. They, 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 they didn't have the same potency, the power of Christ. But when Jesus... The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When He died on the cross, His work on the cross, when He said, it is finished, He meant it. The Greek word is tetelestai, that He screamed out. And it literally means complete, but also, listen, paid in full. I like that. So it could be translated, it is finished, but it also can be translated, paid in full. It's done. 
It's done. And to prove that there is nothing more that you can do or add to the completed work of salvation, I'm going to go to heaven and sit down. I like that. Number six. Why is the ascension of Jesus important? Because it is the start of Jesus' activities in heaven on behalf of God's redeemed people. Guys, when Jesus went to heaven, that doesn't mean that he became inactive. Jesus continues to work for our, on our behalf in heaven. And at the ascension of Jesus Christ, his heavenly work began. Let me explain to you what that work is. Number one, he is our mediator. He is our mediator. In 1 Timothy 2.5, it says there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So as a mediator, Jesus connects us to God and he connects God to man. We are all brought together through the person of Christ. He's also our high priest. And I love that. I love the fact that we have a great high priest. And there are two notable features of his work as our high priest. Number one, he cares for us. I hope you know that this morning. I hope you know that right now that we have a high priest that cares for you, for us. In Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed Through the heavens, that's ascension language, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Listen, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Conclusion, application, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's so important for us to understand because sometimes in our weaknesses we feel like we can't go to God. Oh man, I failed, I'm weak, how is God ever going to accept me? No, the message of our high priest is because you are weak, because you fail, that's incentive to boldly enter into His presence to the throne of grace. I love that. Are you a failure? Are you weak? Then don't shy away from God's presence. Man, you should be running to the presence of God. Why? Because we have a high priest. We have a high priest that helps us. He cares for us, but He also intercedes for us. In Hebrews 7, verses 25 through 26, it says, He is able. I like those verses in the Bible, the able verses. He is able to say to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. It doesn't mean that he doesn't want to be with sinners. It just means he's not in the category of sinners. Separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. Why is the ascension of Christ important? Because Jesus is doing that for us in heaven. He's praying for us. Right now he's praying for you. You might feel like no one ever thinks about me, no one ever prays for me. Oh yeah, there are people that pray for you. The Bible says in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit prays for you. And here we see that Jesus prays for you. Also, it means He's our advocate, our defense attorney. 
We're all familiar with law and order, so we know what an advocate is. In 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, listen, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Guys, our aim in this life is not to sin. But we know on, for all practical purposes, we sin. And we sin pretty regularly. And the good news is, is that we have an advocate in heaven and he is called the righteous. And the righteous one, the sinless Son of God, stands up on our behalf and he advocates for us, reminding us that his righteousness has been imputed to our account. And God declares us again to our, our hearts, our troubled hearts that are struggling with guilt, struggling with frustration, that we are justified. That we are innocent in God's sight. What else does He do in heaven? Well, He's our baptizer. He's our baptizer. We learned last week He baptizes His people with the Holy Spirit. In John 16, 7, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. Now, for the disciples, I'm sure that, that statement really stumbled them. What do you mean it's to our advantage that you go away? No, it's to our advantage that you stay with us. But He says, it's to your advantage that I go away for if I... Do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. In Acts 2.33, Peter said, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, that's ascension, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he says, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so in pouring out the Holy Spirit upon our lives, remember last week, He empowers us to be effective witnesses for Christ in this world. To be witnesses. And remember, we, we talked about how that word witness in the Greek is the word martyrus. It's where we get the English word martyr. That Christ would enable us and empower us with the kind of power we need to boldly, courageously preach of Christ and die for Him if necessary. Supernatural. Because I know I don't have it in myself to die for Christ. I don't like pain. My wife can attest to that. In fact, most guys don't like pain you know, the, the wife, when they get a fever, they're still cooking and taking care of the kids. Guys, we cry. We don't like pain. So to die for Christ, that has to be supernatural power. And that is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is the baptizer, but also He's the gift giver. He's the gift giver. In Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 11, it says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, When He ascended on high, He led a host of captives, and He gave gifts to men. In saying He ascended, what does it mean? But that He had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that He might fill all things. That's ascension. And He says, and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Guys, when it says that in His ascension He gave gifts, 
it was very common, especially in Roman times, that whenever an army would go into battle and would conquer a nation, they would bring all the spoils back to the city and either the general or the king would distribute those gifts to the men that fought in that battle. This is an astounding thing because I didn't fight. Jesus fought. He fought for my salvation. But the grace of God is this, that He accumulated the spoils and He said, I'm going to distribute it among the church. And one of the clear evidences of Him distributing gifts is Him providing for the church the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. And one last point, and we'll wrap up our message. What is the work that Jesus is doing in heaven, the ascended Christ? Guys, he's a home builder. You know, Jesus is into construction. Remember on earth he was a carpenter? And he still loves being a carpenter up in heaven. In John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3, Jesus said, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. What is Jesus doing in heaven? He's building a home. He's building a home for his bride, the church. He's a home builder. So all of those things are reasons why we should think about the ascension of Christ. And guys, those are only a few. But it is an important part of the story of Christ. But let's wrap it up with this. Jesus said, I'm going to heaven white to prepare a house for you. But then he gave this. He said, but I'm going to come back to receive you to myself. It's interesting when Jesus said that in John 14, he used the Greek word paralambano. What's great about that word, paralambano, it's the same Greek word that's used of Joseph taking Mary to be his wife. I like that. Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to heaven, I'm going to build a house, and I'm going to come back for you. I'm going to paralambano you to myself. The same way that Joseph paralambanoed Mary to himself to be his bride. And that brings us to this, and we can't finish with it. You heard the expression, what goes up must come down. Jesus went back to heaven with the promise He's going to come back down from heaven. The second coming of Christ. The ascension of Christ completed the first coming of Jesus, but it also announced the second coming of Jesus. Remember when He was ascending to heaven, Acts 1.11 says that, that these angels, these men... These two men that are most likely angels, they announced to the apostles, this Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Guys, I want you to think of this assurance that we have as Christians. And the reason why I'm emphasizing this is because there seems to be, especially in the church, a diminishing, a weakening of this glorious hope that Paul refers to at Namely, the second coming of Jesus. When was the last time you were engaged in a conversation with someone excited about the return of Jesus Christ? 
The problem is, is that I think that too often Christians start loving this world more and becoming more settled here and becoming more acclimated with this temporary life that they begin to think, this is all we've got. This is the best it's going to get. Guys, we're pilgrims. And it's so important that we understand that the story starting with Pentecost on through the book of Acts, on through the New Testament epistles, the New Testament emphasizes the second coming of Jesus. And that's what fueled these guys to do what they did. Guys, do you understand that the second coming of Jesus is an important subject in the Bible? Did you know that the second coming of Jesus is referred to 1,845 times in the Bible. In the Old Testament alone, 1,527 times. In the New Testament, 318 times. Guys, Jesus' return is mentioned 23, in 23 books out of 27 New Testament books. Out of the New Testament's 260 chapters, there are 318 references to the second coming of Christ. That means the second coming of Christ is spoken about more than once in every chapter of the New Testament. Jesus' second coming is mentioned eight times, listen, for every reference to His first coming. Now guys, if the Bible is that interested in the second coming of Jesus, shouldn't we? Why? Because Titus 2.13 says it is our glorious hope. And so for these Christians in the book of Acts, when they went out into the world to preach the gospel, they went out not only with the power of the Spirit to be effective witnesses, but with the assurance Jesus is coming back. Therefore, let's make every second on earth and I can't think of a better way for you guys after talking about the risen Christ and then last week talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and now today talking about the return of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus in heaven for you right now. What a great way to launch into a two-year series into the book of Acts. Amen. But one thing we, we want to do before we finish is respond to this message by remembering the death and resurrection of Christ. It's interesting, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in context to the second coming of Jesus, Paul talks about communion. He talks about the Lord's Supper, and he says, every time you gather to break the bread and to drink the wine, listen, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes back. So what is Paul saying? He's saying that in light of the second coming of Jesus, we should be celebrating the Lord's Supper. And that's why it's right for us to be doing that today. But there are a couple of things you need to understand about the Lord's Supper. Number one, it's a memorial. You guys know what a memorial is, right? It's an event. It's a, it's, it's a practice that pushes the replay button on on your brain and it causes you to think back and in this case about what Jesus did 
for us. We remember. We remember that on the cross, He was our atoning sacrifice, our substitute. He died in our place. He became our sin. And God poured out His wrath. And Jesus absorbed it in His body. And He was punished for our sins. That was the price that had to be paid for our redemption. And that was the work that had to be done for our salvation. We remember that. We don't want to diminish it. We don't want to devalue it. We don't want to belittle it. That's what Christ did for us. But the story doesn't end there. It's also a celebration supper. Jesus did not intend... Jesus did not intend the Lord's Supper to simply be a depressing, sad meal that Christians celebrate. You know, I think of when, in the book of, uh, in the book of Nehemiah, when the Word of God was read to the nation of Israel, and they read about how, what God required of them, and they realized, this, I've sinned in this area, and they began to weep, and and, and Nehemiah and, and Ezra, remember Ezra the scribe, he comes and, and he says, look, this isn't the intention that we're reading the scriptures to you. We're, we're reading these things to you to, to remind you that you're forgiven and God's merciful. And he says, look, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Now generally we understand that to mean, hey, let's be happy in God and we'll be strong. I think there's something more that Ezra was saying. I think what Ezra was saying is the joy of the Lord. God is joyful over you. You see, they were weeping because they thought God's bummed with us. God's sad about us. God is really angry with us. And they were weeping over the scriptures. And, and, and Ezra comes and he says, No, the joy of the Lord is just saying, No, the joy, God is joyful over you. God is joyful over you. And that is your strength in this time of just feeling like, Man, should I just continue in condemnation? Should I continue in guilt? No. You move on and you press through the condemnation and the guilt because God is merciful and He's gracious and there is joy in the presence of God over you. And that's what we remember at communion. That our God is rejoicing over us right now. Not because of who we are, but because of everything Jesus did. And so what a great way for us to finish the service and then to walk out into the world by breaking the bread together, by drinking that juice, and remembering and celebrating the death and resurrection of Christ. Amen? So we're going to pray, and then we're going to distribute the elements, and then we'll partake together.